The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, good morning. Welcome to this edition of uh, Blue Crew Medicine. Today we're going to do submersion injuries. So today I'm joined with some some new folks on the pod. Uh, we've got Ben White, Air Care CCP, and RN. We've got the Don Moore, who's our base lead over at Air Care 2 and Meridian, one of our esteemed CCPs, and new one. We've got uh, Dr. Chris McCuller. So he's one of our EM residents here, second year, right? Yep. Um, also has a background in EMS prior to uh, doing that whole doctorate school thing. So we're glad to have him on. Welcome, guys. Welcome we're to the podcast. To you. Thank you. So today, like I said, we're going to do submersion injuries. So real quick definition, we talk about submersion. Uh, there's been a lot of debate in the last 10 years. I know I've learned 15 different terms for drowning, near drowning, all those things. But submersion is defined. Uh, Utstein definition from 2015 is a drowning refers to a process resulting in a primary respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in a liquid medium. So if that's not physics, I don't know what it is. Um, biggest thing we're talking about with submersion injuries is the highest incidence that occurs between males the age of one to five in the southern states um, in the summer months. So it's April now, we're getting there. Um, in swimming pools, bathtubs, and beaches, the next most popular is uh, males and females, 15 to 25-year-olds in rivers, lakes, and at beaches. And that's... Uh, all over the United States. So why do we care about this? Um, what does it matter? Short version is it can be very, very deadly, very quick. And a lot of times we get all, um, I was talking with Don yesterday before we, before we started this episode and he was talking about how everybody high fives right after get somebody back, get them out of the pool or whatever. Everybody's all excited. And then two weeks later they end up in the ICU and we're doing organ donation discussions. So it's a very can be a very slow process but what we do on the front end can make a big difference in somebody's day um some of the poor outcomes how do you know how do you have a suspicion of a poor outcome so duration of submersion is greater than five minutes that's the most critical the biggest thing to watch for so how long have they been in the water how long have they been in the uh, we say liquid medium but it could be any substance right um it could be a i'm just thinking off the top of my head you got a crawfish boil a bunch of water sitting in there some kid falls in it Okay, three days later, how long after the crawfish boil, how long have they been sitting in there? They've been in there two minutes or they've been in there 15. All of them make a big difference. Um, time to basic life support. So we're talking about real simple CPR, respiratory, is it greater than 10 minutes? Uh, resuscitation duration. So do they, when they talk about resuscitation, they're not talking about active resuscitation like we do every day in the ER on the aircraft and the back of an ambulance. We're talking about um, active resuscitation as far as CPR itself. Um, greater than 25 minutes, again, poor outcome. That's pretty much consistent across the AHA and any, any form of resuscitation. Um, if they're greater than 14 years, they don't do as well. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the pathophysiology behind that here in a minute. Uh, GCS less than five, persistent apnea or requiring ET tube, pretty common, or they have a blood gas with a pH lower than 7.1. So super acidotic, not gonna do as well. Um, so, when they start for typically for most people uh they panic and they freak out okay doesn't matter what age you are a little kid or big adult um and it's hypoxemia by aspiration that's what kills them uh, more than anything else and it's the liquid medium so it's what's in the liquid so is it straight distilled water that's pure and 
all happy? Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, not going to happen. And then do they have the reflex syringe spasm when the li- uh, liquid contacts the lower respiratory tract, which causes them to um, basically constrict down and then, again, makes everything ten times worse? Except you're dry drowning. Yep. So dry drowning, they close everything off, but, again, you're talking about the alveoli collapsing and everything else getting ugly from there. So how about you all? Have you seen a bunch of these? Over the years, I'm sure. Um, if you, what do, what do y'all think of when you think of submerged injuries? Um, I know right out the gate, nine times out of ten, the ones that I've dealt with over the past twelve years would probably, it's a detrimental injury, for the most part. Every I've only dealt with one drowning that was, that had a, a good outcome. Most of them, like you said earlier, are going to be in that, fifteen to twenty five year old range. They're on the river, so you're looking at. 20 minutes of getting to the patient and and again don't know how long we've been in the water so it's usually not a good outcome and there's multiple factors to you know survival of outcome but the 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 number one survival factor is is length of immersion and and to his point you're rural mississippi rural ems across the nation you've got time to get there a are you trained in water rescue at all do you have a boat? Do you have, I mean, there's a lot of factors that factor into how long they've been immersed. And there's a lot of factors that go into survivable outcomes, but the biggest key is how long were they immersed? Um, most of the time, that's what you're fighting, honestly. Uh, the James Orlowski, he's got a, uh, was an author back in the 1980s. He has a prognostic scoring system. Uh, it's five factors to it. And, um, you know, age less than three years, was the submersion greater than five minutes? Was there resuscitation during the first 10 minutes? So the first 10 minutes, as soon as they pulled them from the immersion or submersion, was BLS, to your point earlier, was BLS started? Just basic ABCs um, started within the first 10 minutes once they were pulled from the submersion. Were they in a coma state when they arrived at the hospital? And the fifth factor was, was their pH less than 7.1 on a hospital admission. So you got five factors here. And when he wrote this in this study, and it's still proven true today, one to two of those factors, if two of those are less or there, then you have a greater than 90% reasonable outcome. The threshold super small. You go from two or less to greater than 90% to three or more and your survival outcome is 5%. I mean, you're talking about a, an 85% swing there. And so, again, your longest, your biggest factor is how long are they under? And then you have all these other factors that we can figure out with lab values and what their presentation is. And, and it kind of, I mean, it points to the importance of, of BLS as well in these rural counties, these fire departments and volunteers and even just parents knowing CPR for their kids. Um, knowing, you know, now the CPR is so focused on age-specific, I don't have to know CPR for every age. If I've got a one-year-old at home, I can just learn CPR for one-year-old. Um, and so it kind of paints the picture of why BLS, CPR, ABCs, you know, CAB nowadays, um, which is kind of odd when you talk about submersion injuries, they actually the guidelines with AHA tell you to go back to the ABC side. Yeah. Like, so 
for us, it's more of a, hey, we've been trying to steer ourselves against this whole ABC thing that most of us coming up, like, hey, that was drilled in our head. Now we're okay, well, we can go back to that, but it's hard to transition back. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And then you got this one spot injury, these submerging injuries, that now you got to go back to ABC to try to remember that. And so that can be a little bit of a, um, a challenge sometimes, but. Rule, rule Mississippi, rule EMS doesn't, to Ben's point and to, to my experience, speaking to him, I've only had a couple that were good outcomes. And most most of it is time, mm-hmm. honestly. Oh, yeah, definitely. The fun fact I'm going to throw in here real fast, while we're kind of talking about changes in the literature, it used to be a big deal if it was salt or fresh water. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much getting thrown out the window. They did a big study a couple of years back and basically said it has to be 22 cc's per kilo for it to matter as far as salt water is you know crossing across the gradient and all that stuff right. um most of the time most average drowning is somewhere between three and five cc's so it shouldn't fresh or salt water doesn't matter now you start getting to the toxic side of the world again i was talking about crawfish boil earlier but it, uh, it could have been anything from vegetable oil, all that kind of stuff now that's gonna that's a whole different animal but um as far as fresh and salt water, don't worry about it. it and we, we don't use those terms anymore. Yeah. Uh, that, that's mm-hmm. that's something new that when we all started, you know, there was, there was near drownings and there were secondary drownings, and, and we just don't use those terms. Now you have a drowning or you don't. Um, you know, you have the difference between wet and dry. You mentioned the laryngospasms from a dry drowning versus the big gulp of air where you suck water into your lungs from an aspiration standpoint is wet. But those terms that we've have a hard time getting away from, we don't we don't use those in the literature anymore. So when you're talking about you brought all these um, great point up about mortality and morbidity and predicting the outcome. So when you talk about submersion injuries, what actually happens in them? The the biggest thing as far as the liquid itself, if you're if you ingest a liquid medium, uh, it washes out the surfactant. Right, so that's the whole different thing with <laughs> your entire respiratory right. cycle and oxygenation. Um, the biggest thing when you start talking about washing out surfactant, and we'll address with management this earlier, is non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and ARDS. Two biggest things, um, which can definitely be a challenge to manage across the board. Uh, next thing we still worry about, again, we're talking about oxygenation and anoxic brain injuries. Um, most of the ones I've dealt with, yeah, they have early onset ARDS, but Usually I'm trying to fix the hypoxic issue more than anything else. Um, arrhythmias, what's the first uh, first thing in ACLS now? You got a, you got a PVC, you give them a little oxygen, maybe try it out yeah. to see what happens. Right. Uh, those ventricular arrhythmias are lethal. Um, having a defibrillator close, if you're at some kind of park or, again, it's rural Mississippi, what, what do you have available to you? Um, but shocking them as early as you can. Electrolyte imbalances, not as important, again, we're talking about, but it can be a thing depending on how much water you ingest. Were they drinking a whole bunch of water beforehand, and then you have this whole um, sodium issue, and then the long-term stuff, pneumonias, chemical pneumonitis. Again, what did you ingest? Um, but I think, though, if you, I mean, if you look at that, minus the, the electrolyte imbalance and the, the chemical pneumonitis and the liquid washout of the surfactant it all really goes back to that to the airway as don was mentioned on a while ago and i think if you also look back in some of the literature that was put out by aha and how you said we're reverting back to that abc technically the first thing we're going to do is provide those two rescue breaths that was immediately taken away a long time ago 
and you want to get that full rise of the chest and hopefully going to stimulate something there. But um, again, it goes back to what Don said. I think good BLS out the gate, even on an ALS standpoint, good BLS out the gate is really what's going to pull this patient from one side or the other, whether it be survival or good neurological prognosis. And compression only uh, CPR is normally something better than nothing, but at the same time with this, it really comes down to that rescue breathing. Yeah. <clears throat> and you're going to get that residual pull just from doing compressions, but yeah. the more you can get on that ventilation management, the better off these patients have a shot at doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, we're worried about alveolar collapse or we're about recruiting lung tissue later on, getting into ARDS here in a minute, one of my favorite subjects. But if you keep everything open, you ain't got to worry about all that recruitment later. So. Yeah. And you bring up the... the AD nearby, defib, that type of things. You know, just something to, you know, remind ourselves. We're in Mississippi here, and we're specifically kind of that's what we're talking about. But, but if you talk about, you know, medicine in general, there are a lot of places that are cold. Even in Mississippi, right now in April, the water's still cold, mm-hmm. and so you have to remind yourself about, you know, that that 86 degrees, the body's cold, let's defib once, but let's wait after that till we've warmed the body up and done active. You know, there's been 100% neurological outcomes with bodies immersed over an hour in cold water. And so with that, don't give up hope on these patients either. You know, they haven't been seen in three or four hours. They've been out at the lake fishing and now you find them. And most people just kind of move on or write those people off and like they they probably have a chance even in mississippi even as as warm as the water can get you know you have that the idea of that mammalian dive reflex they get cold water immersion apnea bradycardia the thought is well they have a laryngeospasm and so they may not have a whole lot of water at all to your point earlier most survivable drownings are three to four cc's per kilo of water not a whole lot at all you're talking about mammalian dive reflex in a cold water they might not have any water. any water they may completely go apnea laryngeospasm down and then their body goes into this you know this this state of, of cold protection and so don't give don't don't um don't skip your steps for these patients that you find way after the fact there is still a lot of hope and a lot of literature that says you still got a really high prognostic if you do your BLS when you first pull them out, that you still have a chance to actually give them not only an outcome, and that's what we're after. We're after outcomes, but what we're doing here, what we're doing here at UMC and at AirCare and, and across medicine is trying to push not just outcomes, but livable outcomes. People that have productive lives and people that can go back to maybe doing everything they did before. Um, and that, that's what we're focused on. It's morbidity. It's, it's what can they do when they get home? Right. Can they still have a functioning life? Can they still be, you know, happy and do all as a medical professional, we always say that the quality of life following it. Yeah. You know, what's the quality of life? And, you know, we can high five all day long in the ER bay at, behind the ambulance saying, we got the pulse back, we got them back, we dropped them off. But to me, that's not a win. You know, the win is the walkout, you know, a week later or two How weeks are later. They neurologically. Yeah. 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 And, Kind of to what you were saying, a lot of that morbidity is going to come from the hypoxic ischemic injury that you get 
uh, cerebral hypoxic ischemic injury, that is. And with that cold water, the, the metabolic demands of the brain are going to drop uh, with each degree. I think it's 10%. Um, I may be wrong on that data, but something like uh, 10% or something per uh, degree Celsius, Celsius dropped. Yeah. And as that drops down, that's decreases the chance of that hypoxic ischemic injury, which decreases overall morbidity in the in the long term, which right. is why some of those colder colder mm-hmm. water submersions can be a lot more survivable long term. That's a double-edged sword. I think we have to play it in our favor, but walk a line with it. Mm-hmm. So. Definitely. So we kind of already touched on it, but getting into management of these patients. So um, we'll do a case scenario here toward the end, but temperature management's a big deal. Yeah. Um, Again, Mississippi is one of those places it can be 15 degrees one day and 90 the next. But the water pretty much stays the same. It doesn't fluctuate um, day to day as much. Now, it does through the seasons. But keep that in mind. It may be summer or early summer. Water still may be 60 degrees. It's really easy to drop your temperature back. So we got to figure out how to warm these patients up. Now, if you are an ambulance and you have emergency blankets or aircraft or whatever, great. Those are things to do. But try to get them dry it's the first thing or get a get everything deconned from a hazmat world right um dry them off best you can and then warm them up and that that's we don't like to talk about that in in uh especially in the ems world outside we're in the heat we're in august we're in mississippi it sucks we're <coughs> sweating like but these are those patients that you have to dry them off and remove their wet clothing and this is those hey you need to turn the heater on in August, turn the heater on. Tell the pilot turn the aircraft heater on. You're gonna be. You're gonna have to change flight suits. You're gonna have to change yeah. uniforms when you get done. More but, likely, you're gonna have to anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but temperature management is is highly important with these patients. Um, to your point, 60 degree water, you're gonna be cold. That the core body is gonna be cold, and just room temp. What we're comfortable setting in, like the, a room like today gonna take a long time uh, for that to for that body temp to come up let's take take the two seconds we we're talking about the other day uh, a different episode temperature measurements one of those things that's super simple to do but it's a lot of times it's thrown on the wayside initial temps matter here um, again we don't want to warm them up too fast but we definitely want to warm them up try to get them decon best you can get them out um, make the pilot unhappy if you have to. Whatever, whatever you need to do. Which well, it's, it's like, yeah, and Don, you know, on the on our other job on the outside, on the EMS education side of it, I tell my students all the time with trauma, submergence, or anything like that. If you're not having a white white sweat out of your eye, you're doing your patient an injustice at that point in the back of the ambulance. So. And this is one of those times that when you get to the trauma bay, when you get to the resuscitation bay, that needs to be with the vitals. What is mm-hmm. the core body temperature? And it's one of those. You know, there there was, um, you know, there's no way around it in medicine that COVID was terrible. Temperature was one of those vital signs that made a huge comeback in assessments. We had, like you said, we'd thrown it away, especially on the EMS side. We felt them, and if they were hot, they were hot. (laughs) The old back of the hand. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that's one thing that moving through COVID in the last two years it has helped bring us back to our core assessments. And temperature has always been a core assessment tool. And so now, you know, I mean, it's not uncommon at all. Every ambulance you step on now or helicopter has a temperature or a thermometer, whether it be skin or rectal or esophageal, but everybody's got it. 
five years ago, didn't none of them have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of critical care transport, didn't no, no ambulances have that. And so I think that was a, a positive maybe to, to kind of take away from where we've been over the last couple of years from an assessment standpoint. You bring up trauma and these submersion patients, trauma is not always present, but it can be. Can be. Um, I had a case a couple of years back, you know, kids in the summer jumping off a bridge, jumped off a bridge, for some reason blacked out. Well, now he's got a submersion injury on top of it, was unconscious. So it's not one of those things don't, I hate the term rule out, but don't forget about it, but it can be there. Um, usually it's not as common though. And which kind of goes back completely opposite of what you're taught in medic school, I know. Because every unconscious patient in the water is a cervical injury until proven otherwise. And you'll see here as we continue talking, which with all that spinal restriction, cervical restriction, all that, they, if we're not careful, it's going to be an airway nightmare. Definitely. And in the, in the pre-hospital setting, getting a history, using the resources you yeah. have, if somebody's there with them, somebody might have seen what happened, get that story. If it sounds like it could be something that would cause a C-spine injury, go ahead and treat it that way. But if they give you the right story that there's no trauma involved in this, it's, again, it's an airway nightmare that you don't need to worry about. Yep. And part of that, that history we talk about, it to your point earlier, we're not really worried about the type of water anymore yep. as much as we used to be. Uh, now, you get into dirty ponds, dirty lakes that, you know, they put lime in it over the weekend for their fish. That, that's different. But but for the most part, we're not worried about the type. We're worried about the temperature of the water. How long were they in the water? You know, what happened immediately? You know, did we find them in the water from an EMS standpoint or had somebody already pulled them out? And what happened from in the water to, you know, out of the water? Did anybody do anything from a BLS standpoint? Those are the big topics not necessarily the type of water anymore like like you mentioned earlier as far as getting something out getting somebody out when you when you get them out of the water um if they are spontaneous breathing or halfway with it it's not uncommon for them to vomit honestly um hey they got a bunch of water that swallowed in their gut or we're talking about lungs that are biggest thing but hey they got a bunch of water in their gut and they're gonna they're gonna vomit well put them on their side put them in the recovery position make sure they try to prevent that aspiration best you can um which will be my next point patient positioning so just like in ARDS and COVID pneumonia, like we've talked about the last couple of years, but make sure you get that head of the bed up best you can. If he, again, if, even if they are spinally immobilized, try to stilt them up. Let gravity help you out. Um, gravity doesn't go away, so welcome to Earth. Um, use it to your advantage trying to get that uh, liquid medium away from the alveoli best you can. There's nothing more frustrating than getting ROSC and then tunnel visioning down from there and having a mini celebration, if you will. And then they vomit and they're still supine and they aspirate and they die two weeks later because of aspiration pneumonia and sepsis and multi-organ failure. Like those are the, those are the ones that were preventable from an EMS standpoint. Now, speaking of submersion injuries in general, highly preventable, almost, almost all of them. There are accidental stuff, sure. Most of them are highly preventable. Um, from an EMS standpoint, those two, three weeks later, sepsis, pneumonia, aspiration stuff is stuff that we can affect and we should be focused on. Positioning goes a long ways with that. So Ben, you want to open the door, airway management? Yeah. We're talking about airway, airway, airway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it, starting it out, like I said earlier, the, just understanding the basics of a basic life support on it and and I say basic life support even on the ALS side of it 
you know, Absolutely. as a paramedic, you know, we like to mm -hmm. jerk our shirt open and show the S on our chest because we got them intubated. Uh, was there steps we could have took prior to intubating this patient, you know, resuscitate before intubate? Um, so doing the standard two breaths, make sure we got good rise and fall of the chest. Um, does the patient respond to it? Do we start having spontaneous respirations with it? If not, then we can start taking this a step further. Um, a big issue, and I noticed in the, in the points there, we know you mentioned the NIPPV on these patients, especially if they're conscious. You know, if, if, are the indications there for the positive pressure ventilations on non-invasive side of it? Um, and I, I will tell you on a paramedic standpoint coming off the ground prior to going into the ER, uh, I was pro-pro CPAP because, you know, we didn't have the B, uh, BiPAP part of it, but it is still, even though it's been on the ground side for a while, it is just now really starting to show its face in the ground EMS side. And I think it, it kind of goes back to the, and I'm not trying to throw any service particular on the bus, but the educational aspect of it, you know, people were afraid of it. So, because they didn't quite understand it. But think about what you're trying to do. Go to that washout you're talking about. Go to the oxygenation side of it versus the ventilation side of it. Is, this, is it a ventilation issue or is it an oxygenation issue? Which one is it? Well, let's, let's try to complement both of them. So, and with your CPAP or your BiPAP or your positive pressure ventilation, so to say, then you're gonna get your oxygenation aspect out of it. Chris, it brings up a good point with oxygenation. Uh, high flow has become a very utilized tool, uh, especially since COVID. You think it'd be a good candidate for these patients? especially if they can't tolerate, say the pressure is a BiPAP or CPAP. Like I'm thinking, or think, if they're even slightly altered. Slightly altered, just slightly altered, just enough to where you don't, hey, I don't feel it. We're probably bridging toward intubation, but mm -hmm. yeah. how do I, either um, a ground paramedic, I don't have access to paralytics, or I don't feel a DAI is appropriate here, mm -hmm. or hey, it's a pediatric patient. A lot of our, our kids, it's very hard to manipulate BiPAP or CPAP. Right. Um, if you don't have a really good ventilator, a really good uh, product, honestly, mm -hmm. those fast that p ramp they're getting they that it's a comfort thing mm -hmm. so uh you think high flow would be a good candidate for here for yeah i think once you've once you've moved from the initial again bls just given good positive pressure breaths if if they if they need it you know just stepwise progression from there again you know sometimes especially around here uh most of our ground crews um unless i'm not knowing something are all drug assisted rather than an RSI, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's <clears throat> not benign, not benign at all. Um, so if you can temporize and get them somewhere that we can just go ahead and RSI if we need to, you know, I, I think it's a, a good plan, um, especially if you're not, your patient is not going to tolerate that, uh, that CPAP, that BiPAP. We're not, you know, my high flow nasal cannula from a ground transport you know the the big thing with high flow nasal cannula is humidified that's what that's what you hear humidified yeah. humidified humidified we're not making those transports long enough in ems for that to matter mm -hmm. to your point if they can't tolerate bipap cpap positive pressure ventilation but you don't have the resources to rsi them completely and knock them down put a nasal cannula on them and turn it turn it turn it high Oxygen, oxygen. Oxygen's yeah. oxygen. Yeah. You're gonna force yeah. it. You know, it's it's a it's a non-invasive, almost positive pressure in theory from a high flow nasal cannula standpoint. If you get it high enough, but it's less irritating, and a lot of times they tolerate a little bit better. And yes, if you got humidified oxygen, perfect. And it may allow you to go up higher than you know than you were planning to go up. 
but don't be afraid to just put a canyon on somebody and turn it up 10, 12, 15 liters to at least maybe bridge you a gap to get the hypoxia corrected. Mm -hmm. And then maybe their mental status gets better. And then now we can tolerate BiPAP, CPAP. And so there's a, it's a stepping. Yeah. That's a practice that I try right now. Even when I, you know, go in and, and my partner make the decision to RSI patients that so we're getting ready. I throw them on a nasal cannula, 15 liters. And, oh, yeah. you know, uh, and even on wild, a thing, man. That's, yeah. that's yeah. the way to go. And these patients, you know, you got to think about the recruitment that's taking place. I mean, they're going to drop that. They're not going to be like your standard head injury patient where you go in there and look to intubate this patient. You're like, oh, we're in there for, Lord forbid it happened, but you're in there for an extended period of time in the airway and you look up and say, you're still hanging around the 98 mark. It's probably not going to happen on these patients. No, these are these are ones that are going to quickly decompensate. They've already had some alveolar collapse. Depends on, uh, to me and my, in my my experience, it's it depends on length of injury. So ours is something right. doesn't happen quick. We, again, we talk about ours all the time, but ours is a progressive disease. So it's that's right. It's not something the first you got somebody in the first thirty minutes you intubate them, they may not have that. Mm -hmm. If you're getting somebody delayed, hey, they were to Don's point earlier, rural, rural EMS, if you're somewhere out in the middle of Delta and you just got to a hospital and it's been three hours or just got to a team right. that can handle it, man, it, the, the, that, uh, that DSAT thing is going to, you know, they got yep. here, push the, push the sedative, boom, now we SATs went from 90 to 40. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not budging out of there. No. I mean, even with some aggressive treatment following it. Mm -hmm. um, intubation. So we, we talked about RSI, Chris, you brought it up. Anything you consider, anything you think about when you think about intubating these patients, anything special? Mostly just the ventilatory management, keeping that, uh, you know, ARDSNET lung protective strategies from there because, you again, we are thinking about development of ARDS over time. Um, so, again, the six to eight cc's per kg, um, keeping the, the plateau pressures down, that kind of a thing. Um, but, again, intubation... It, the longer I've gone, the more I've started to pay attention to intubation is not benign, and I don't want to intubate unless I have to. So when do we need to do that? Um, if we're giving some supplemental oxygen and we've got a persistent oxygen sat below 90, uh, that's when we need to start thinking about pulling that trigger. Um, if you've got a, once you're in the department, uh, if you can get an ABG, that's one of the biggest things in these patients, get that ABG, because that's going to really direct your management. And if you've got a, a PaO2 less than 60 or uh, your CO2 is greater than 50, that's another time we need to really start thinking about, um, really start thinking about intubation. Okay. And I'd end up to piggyback what he said, you know, when you're, if you look at it and isolate this down to a pulmonary aspect on treating these patients, um, you're going to look at it just like you would a large, uh, an arch patient. I mean, essentially that's what you got going on. So. You know, use the lung protective or the LTBB approach on these patients, low tidal volume uh, ventilation approach on these patients. Uh, some of the literature I was reading on this, um, though the one thing that kind of threw me off on the ARDS where, you know, we kind of tend to, to be okay with a higher uh, plat and looking at the um, peeps a little bit, but that was showing that they had an increase in mortality with patients being ventilated on the LTBB approach with peaks greater than 15, which I mean, granted, PP15 is still pretty significant, but, and I know on the critical care aspect side of this, that's not uncommon for us to see that, but on the ground side of it, when you start dropping that peep word, because you hear all these horror stories about intrathoracic pressures and dropping BP, so they're kind of hesitant about going into these higher peep levels with the patient. But again, think about 
the, the physiology of what's taking place. That is how you're going to oxygenate the patient, associate oxygenation with PEEP. So, and you know, if you go into that approach with the six to eight mils per key on that patient, also you gotta remember that's gonna be a lower volume, so we're gonna increase the rate. We still have to maintain the ventilation aspect of it, so the ventilation on this patient, so we'll accompany that with that increased rate. So if you drop those volumes, you might have to increase the rate a little bit more. And if you don't have a, a ventilator from a PEEP standpoint, um, so we talk about BLS care and ALS care. There are still basic basic aspects to ALS care. Now, I'm not saying, you know, OPA, BVM versus intubation. I'm saying once you got them intubated, there are basics to intubation that we should be thinking about. Do we put them on a PEEP valve at all? Right. You know, we're breathing normal right here talking on the podcast at, at you know, FIPA 5. Yeah. And now we have all of a sudden, not only did we completely wash out our alveoli, they've completely collapsed. Now we've went backwards from their normal physiological state as well. And so if you don't have a peep valve, you need one. And anybody that you intubate should be at least on a 5. Yeah. But even the manual peep valves that you can put on your BVMs from a truck standpoint, you can go super high on those things. Um, so if you don't have a ventilator, that doesn't mean you can't provide positive pressure. Uh, you should be doing that anyway on every intubation, especially when you start looking at submersion injuries and, and increasing that peep and so forth. We talk about recruitment here and starting to break on it. When you when you intubate them, you're worried about alveolar collapse. You're slowly recruiting them. The more breaths you give them, again, talking about changing volumes and all this other stuff. But something that came out of COVID that, to me, seemed to be kind of voodoo-ish, and it was only mentioned really in uh, hymns, honestly, or really bad Mickey patients, was clamping the ET tube. Yeah. And, man, it is – I know I, I do it every time, but um, unless it's really bad asthmatic for the most part. And – but taking the two seconds and clamping it. I understand not everybody carries hemostats. They don't have a flight suit with 15,000 pockets. Um, you need a pair of hemostats. Yeah, but yeah. but if you get a pair of hemostats <laughs> off of eBay, Amazon, you know, Target, whatever. Bass Pro Shop. Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, they got them. <laughs> um, just a little pair of alligator forceps. Just to, again, you don't want to lose everything. Even if you're using, uh, and you can manipulate a BVM to give you some peak. Right. The, yeah. It's based off volume and how much you let go. Um, so if you're getting that really high rate, low volume off a of BVM and you're getting that residual peep recruiting them back, okay, cool. I'm going to transition to a ventilator. The second I make that decision, give them one good breath, clamp that too. Mm-hmm. Right. Man, it, it makes a big difference. And I don't, I feel really bad when you get somebody that pops off and you've got a flight crew or an facility crew or whatever, even an in-house transport, they've worked really, really hard to get this patient back. They've, they've done all this alveolar recruitment and then they unclamp it too, but the tube cups off whatever it may be start all over again yeah and then they're starting i won't if we make it that yeah if you make it that far i mean you're starting from scratch i mean you ventilated that patient for literally 30 to 40 minutes to get them to a part where you're like huh okay we're making some ground and then somebody go and you're like that's where you cause a spin up real quick and hurt feelings get hurt (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) um something else that's kind of cool is again coming out of covid but uh, submersion injuries and covid are not that different to me Mm -hmm. um as far as management Pulmonary vasodilators. So we're talking about nitrate, Flowland, Velitri, um, everybody's big favorites. You can use them. Um, I wish uh, I wish our resident pharmacist, Michael Griggs, was around, but I think I, he'd have the same opinion I would, I'm not trying to speak for him. It's not something you pull the trigger on fast. 
Right. Let, them, let them declare themselves and say, hey, look, they really need some vasodilation. They're really constricted. We're trying to open everything back up and then go down that road. Um, maybe later in the ER, having trouble getting upstairs, think about it. And even then, by that point, we're usually not hands-on management um, with the patient. Um, most of the time, by the time we're thinking about anything like that, one of the ICU teams has already taken over and they're they're making those calls, not us. Yeah, and this is not something that, the reason I bring this up, somebody asked me, oh cool, well, you, you pick up submersion injury on the aircraft, you automatically put them on flow then. I'm sitting there going, eh, man, this is something, you start talking about vasodilators, that's something usually six, eight, 12 hours out, and that's early. Um, it's not something that's gonna happen very fast. And Kids, adults, either side. It's, it's, it's way down the stepping ladder yeah. for the most part. And then on top of that, when you decide to do that, there's a lot of steps inside that stepping ladder to make flow yeah, land and nitrate work. Happen. And there's equipments and, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that go into that, especially from a transport standpoint. You know, MICUs, those type deals, they, they probably do it and can do it with their eyes closed for the most part. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects in transport when you start talking about flow land and nitric and setups and mounts and, you know, do you got leg room at all? And I mean, yeah. just little things like that. That it's all about the leg room for you. Isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, if I can't cross my legs, then we're not doing this. <laughs> so. I think it's important to have that in the back of your mind. And, and from a critical care transport, they may have been at XYZ hospital for eight, 10, 12 hours. And they may be either a about to pull that trigger or already have, or you may be at a facility or an organization you that can brings it. that that recognizes it and brings that resource to them and so it is good to be familiar with it how it works what it does and then if you you know have the training on it know how to set your equipment up know how to you know know that you got backup batteries and know that you got the right tubings and all that kind of stuff um because you may be in it from a transport standpoint a critical care transport whether it be ground or flight you may be coming into it on hour 12 and they may be, that may be the next step, step to the bridge that makes an, an, an outcome difference. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So we've hit on the pulmonary hill alongside of it. Again, biggest thing, ArgeNet, 4 to 8, watch your peep, try to touch RDFO2. Get on a real vent. We're going to start doing gases, trends, everything. Usually it's pretty much it's a hypoxic thing. For the most part, it's not a whole lot retaining unless they have some underlying physiology there happen to be an asthmatic and this is just a more complex day um speaking of asthmatics real quick just i'm going to lose your train of thought but most of these patients are going to have some sort of bronchospasm asthma yeah. wheezing don't be afraid to give them yeah. a beta too like it's a, a lot of times reflex. a lot of times in ems if we don't have the presentation that we know beta 2 is far like asthma we we forget about those drugs but the assessment part and the presentation of wheezes, bronchoconstriction is the same. It doesn't matter if it's asthma related, COP related, uh, or submersion related. They're all they're all the same physiologically and they're treated the same. So don't be afraid to pull that trigger on those beta two type drugs as well. Well, and I was even gonna go on that. You bring it up, mag. Mag, mag yeah, I mean, yeah. we're talking about cardiac irritability. Here's the next step on my list. And it was like, all right, well, hey, you got some ventricular arrhythmia. I mean, yeah, I know ACLS, torsades, mag is the game go. But you can have some reduction in cardiac irritability just by giving mag for you're giving it Absolutely. for the, the bronchodilation side of it. But man, it can it can make a world of difference in the cardiac street. To piggyback right. onto that, one of the things that I found um, in the most recent literature was 
so we talk about beta twos and we talk about mag but the middle ground a lot of times is those corticosteroids right that's yeah. usually the middle ground when we talk about you know bronchoconstrictions corticosteroids and submersion injuries actually have an adverse effect, adverse effect. and so yeah. it's one of those where we just kind of want to omit that part of the the, the process beta 2 then mag and just kind of skip over the corticosteroids because they have a uh, an adverse effect in that and where a lot of that comes from is that sepsis literature hey yep. you give a whole bunch of solumetrol to a septic patient doesn't usually go well no, no. <laughs> um so stripping down the street to cardiac um as far as pressure use I, i'm pretty comfortable with everything what, what are your thoughts chris you like them if hey, i need them yeah if i need them um and The biggest, we've talked a lot about the respiratory. Um, we can beat that dead horse all day. Um, but if you treat what's in front of you, if you've got a patient who needs them, just go ahead and go ahead and do it. Um, you know, keep it in mind that you can look at that right-sided heart failure. Um, and in that case, it may be a little more beneficial to go ahead and go the vasopressin route rather than starting with levofed, which is typically what we do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a whole <coughs> lot of Vazone and Levo are pretty much the standard for our yeah. team and our practice here, but yeah. I don't think you're going wrong either one of them. When you get an electrolyte shift, like you said earlier, at 22 cc's per key, that's a, man, that's a lot of fluid. It's a lot of fluid. And you do get some volume shift. You're talking about cardio, you know, vascular collapse and, and, and cardiac support. You don't, you don't see a whole lot of that in submersion injuries. Um, and you, but you do get some volume shift when you get around the 11 cc per key. That's still a lot of fluid. You're talking about a 100 kilo patient. That's that's over a liter of fluid that they've aspirated. Most of the time, they have either laryngospasm down, and so they don't get that much, or they've become apneic because of um, their PO CO2 is has dropped, and now their hypercarbic drives kicked in, and they just stop breathing, and so they don't get that high. But if you do get that high, you may have some volume shift, so you may need pressors of, of some sort. Um, and so the the vasopressin, levofed, and, and ultrasound's another tool. Oh, yeah. You know, slap it on their abdomen, <coughs> see what their IVC is. Are they truly volume down, or are we missing something? Is this trauma? Is it neurogenic? Right? We talked about we we we're, you know, this is a spinal injury to proven otherwise for your unconscious or your you know alcohol induced. Um, drug-induced patients with some urgent injuries, is this something we're missing? We slap an ultrasound on them and see, man, their IVC's full. This shouldn't be a volume problem. Their heart is squeezing. We see that on ultrasound. What what are we missing here? Um, that brings up another good point. Talking about volume management, you got to be careful. Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is, again, ours is one of those things. That's what we're worried about long term. Same thing with septic patients. You know, we've gone away from that 30 cc per kilo. Everybody gets automatically. So be mindful. I, again, I would base it purely to me. Everything I do as far as volume resuscitation, once that Foley's placed, base it off of Foley. Yeah. So if you get 0.5 to 1 cc's per kilo uh, per hour, then their, their kidneys are perfused. Everything's happy. Um, I don't know. Do anything else recently in the ER besides that fully? I mean, that's, that's pretty much everything's yeah. based off your in output. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's be mindful of it. Now, as far as what what fluid everybody can talk about, oh well, they need plasma light or whatever's trendy today. Um, depends on what paper just came out two days ago. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> depends on the paper. What did up the date say yesterday? Yeah, I'd say this. Uh, 
how's everybody feel about balance stuff? Just plasma light LR, one something, something with something in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, I think I think more important maybe than the type of fluid is the same way we talk about the water. We don't worry about the type of water as much as we worry about the temp of water. water. Mm. The same way with our volume management. We're not worried about necessarily with the type. I think isotonic is the, the best option, but we're more, more let's, let's get it out of the fluid warmer, right? Yeah. Let, let's get warm fluids. Well, let's run it through a warmer, the blood warmers, and, and run fluid. That becomes super important. When and I think about on the ground side of that, I'll tell you, just coming off the truck, that is still something during the summertime, you know, everybody in the room obviously with the ems background we've been on that ground side so you've been on the in the summertime we get away from throwing that bag of fluid up on the dash or throwing it in that heating compartment in the back of an ambulance that we made with a dollar general heating pad <laughs> you know for the winter time we're, we got away from that but you don't understand that truck sitting in that ambulance bay or that truck set outside or you've been in it running all day at 70 or at 68 degrees because you're not i'm not going to sweat my fat butt off in there you know so and that fluid is going to, ambient temp's going to affect it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. piggyback on Don, I think, you know, that's not not necessarily the components, but the temperature. And, I mean, we've already talked about the chances of any kind of electrolyte imbalance from one of these uh, submersion injuries. I think we would, we would have to be looking at super large volume resuscitation for there to be a huge difference between a normal saline and, say, a plasma light right. or an LR. Yeah. I think the acute resuscitation phase, first six, seven hours, it's not going to matter. You're not going to – we're talking about giving these patients maybe one – I mean, 10 cc's per kilo of bolus if yeah. you need to, and then we're working the pressers. We're not yeah. – right. Don't try to overload them with a whole lot of volume uh, if you don't have to. Stepping down the street, anoxic seizures. Again, this is all about hypoxia, so fixing a hypoxic issue. If you can help them, uh, intubate them, airway management, all that kind of stuff, man, I – I've seen these as early as 30 minutes in. So, yeah, all based off presentation. Uh, seizure prophylaxis for these patients? It, Not, no, I, I don't think so, unless you've witnessed some sort yeah. of <clears throat> pupillary change, mental yeah. status change, or an active seizure. I, I don't think prophylaxis is the way to go because if you get them intubated or you get non impressive, uh, non invasive positive pressure or high flow, if you get their hypoxia or the the seizures on di- we're, 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 we're narrowing down to submergent injuries, okay? So submergent injuries, seizures, is, is hypoxic ischemia. Let's fix the hypoxia. Yeah. And if they have a seizure, sure, we need to stop it, A. And maybe we, we load them after the fact. But on the, on the prophylactic side, uh, there, there's, no, there's nothing there that, that says that we need to do that. Yeah, I'm on the, yeah. same, I'm on the same boat there. Yeah. And, and some of the literature you read into it, it even tells you it goes down to – if and quoting that if needed or if highly recommended be sure you know your your non-sedative type managements on these patients so that you know because the whole outcome is our whole goal is to try to get that baseline neurological assessment as soon as possible so that kind of tailored neurology towards how this is going to go on their side also so keeping it simple something else to bring up glucose management all right you want to keep them uroglycemic right um biggest thing here is kids that stress release in mm-hmm. pediatrics make sure you're checking the sugar on these kids yeah okay it's pretty much standard across every ems protocol or um er standard of care hey they're going to check a sugar if they're altered period but don't forget that yeah um also if you have to if they're super cold you pull them out in january you may get a better glucose if you do it off their earlobe or something like that than their actual finger right um so 
try to keep their sugar normal. You don't want to get it too high. We don't get it too low. Just keep it within that whatever is normal for them. I won't say numbers because as Mississippians, some people hypoglycemic for them is two fifty. Yeah, right. Um, and also to get on that, it shouldn't be just a one-time stick on these. Agreed. Especially with a kid. This should be, you know, going back to the rural Mississippi aspect of it, if I'm looking at a 40-minute, 40 45-minute ground transport, at minimum there should be two finger sticks on this kid especially. And not nothing wrong with that doing that with an adult. So this yeah. should be a serial bluco- uh, blood glucose monitor. And even, monitor. even on initial presentation of the emergency department, I, I don't see any problem in you know, every every hour at least for mm-hmm. the first couple of hours just to make sure that it's not trending one way or the other. Yeah. See that stress response. Um, talking about getting in the critical care world and the ER world, um, antibiotics. So I think there's there's a bunch of different opinions and literature out there. What are y'all's thoughts on bug juice? I think it's in Dr. Griff might can about or go against it on it. I think on that aspect, it you have to take into consideration what was brought into the body. Um, obviously, we're not going to have the the luxury of having somebody drowned in a distilled water, purified. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously not. But take into consideration. But is it something that should be held on our side up on the front end? Probably not so much. There's a lot of stuff that we need to be working back on the back side of it. If you do have that. Um, the drawback to that is is we fuss about it every day people go to the clinic i want my antibiotics give me my antibiotics Mm. so i can feel better and then now what do we have they took it for two days and now we have resistance so do we add to that resistance by just tossing some hook shot antibiotics over towards them uh, I don't know. I think there's a line to walk there. Uh, I mean, if, if you pull somebody out of a septic tank, yeah, I'm going to yeah, go ahead. Exactly. I'm gonna cover it. exactly. <laughs> it takes a, a little bit go, of. That's dirty, man. Beating. You got to go there with it. <laughs> I wonder um, who's going to take care of me. But <laughs> this isn't. Um, <laughs> you know, this isn't open wound injury, right? Early, early antibiotics, first hour of the injury that, that helps for you know recovery and all. This, yeah. this isn't that. This is. We don't know what every person in pond and lake in Mississippi, we don't know what that person puts in their lake or pond, what kind of fish or lime or what kind of, I don't know, the, the river, there's, I mean, uh, you know, what, yeah, yeah. whatever. And so take your pick. And so those are, I think, from a transport and even probably the emergency medicine side, alveolar recruitment, hypoxia fix, and volume management. Yeah. Um, if we have an electrolyte shift, then we'll address that. That's highly unlikely with the numbers that you need. But I think that's a pathology, ICU, let's run some cultures and see what we're treating so we don't run into broad spectrum stuff and building resistance up across the, the nation and the world that we're fighting right now, you know. <laughs> There's going to be serial tests done throughout their mm-hmm. state. It's right. going to be where somebody's going to say, hey, you know what, I think we're walking down this road. Let's go ahead and start mm-hmm. treating with some antibiotics on this side. And we, we're definitely talking a lot about the patient that comes in who's on the worst end of the spectrum. You know, we right. really haven't talked much about the person who's coming in who's mentating appropriately, That's right. who's sat 98% on room air. I'm not sending those, those people out with some kind of a prophylactic, <laughs> right. you know. Oh, yeah. Pneumonia. 10 day regimen, yeah. yeah. Um, and even the people who are coming in super sick, we have the luxury at UMC, at least, you know, we have an ED pharmacist who I can turn the corner and go and talk with them and ask them, hey, what do you think of this? Right. 
but most often I'm going to kind of lean towards let's just go ahead and get this patient admitted so we can keep an eye on this you know there's a good chance they're going to develop some some form of a chemical pneumonitis that mm. doesn't need antibiotics right if they do declare themselves that can be something thought about on the back end i think it may have to have another episode uh honestly on chemical pneumonitis on its own submerging injuries but there's uh to me it's one of those yeah, just let them let them figure out where they're where they're going to be at. Right. It's patient dependent. There should be no prophylaxis given. I know, Let's get some specific stuff yeah, given to before them. Before we get on, um, we're talking about worst day scenario ECMO. So a lot of times that's where uh, the critical care team gets involved. Is hey, they've been somewhere, even in a large center somewhere, ICU two, three, four, five days in. Hey, they're not getting any better. Lungs are starting to look like junk. Hey, we're going. We're they're getting an ECMO consult or ECMO whatever they want to call it today. Um, VV ECMO is the way to go. All you're doing is worry about the lungs most of the time. It's not a heart issue. Mm-hmm. So I've seen two of mine have gone on ECMO. I know. Um, both of them were kids, and they did really well. Uh, they, just needed, they just needed a break, and that's what it's for for me. Is ECMO, I think of it as, all right, let's let the body relax. You don't want it too relaxed, yeah. but I want it to, hey, let's take a break. I'm going to do this for you, and then we'll figure it out from there. And if the, if the proper steps are followed in the, the, the step ladder we're talking about, when we're talking about specifically submersion injuries, we go back to those Flowland nitric patients. Those patients that go on Flowland or nitric because of this specific injury are probably headed to ECMO. Yeah. Flowland and nitric is probably bridging us to get us to an ECMO team. And so knowing that that's downstream may change a little bit of how you handle the flow land and nitric and titration and all that kind of stuff uh, as well. But ECMO, like you said, worst case scenario. Um, ECMO does a lot of good though. Yeah. Probably, I mean, I may be speaking out of line, but maybe we should be doing it a little earlier on some other things than we are now. Well, that was one of the key components in one of the articles that I read about ECMO on that. I said, duh, earlier, the better the outcome was well, we're just sitting here talking though sometimes that is almost like our last ditch effort like well we got to try it mode now yeah um but it's it's also a process so mm-hmm. being able to pull that trigger i think for those physicians on that side to pull that trigger to say ecmo i can i don't even want to have that responsibility to be honest with you because of that it has to go behind the thought process into that and that's why i bring it up is maybe hey usually the in the past where we've been getting involved or a lot of teams around the country i've talked to that it's three four five days in what if we start on the first day, you know, hey, this is a patient I had to intubate submersion injury. Cool. Let's start getting those lab values. I want to get that liver right. panel. Let's yeah. get that AL, ALT, AST. Let's, let's figure out all those things I need to check the box so that when I get ready, hey, this isn't getting any better. I'm only getting worse. Do I go ahead and call ECMO and get involved? Let's get all the CV surgery team, all the, all the prep work in the background that first 24 hours. Maybe we have a better, better mm-hmm. shot at this. Mm-hmm. Um, just thinking ahead again part of the reason we talk about this podcast is hey knowing what you what we're going to do to fix them how it makes a difference today but what you can do to understand downstream care hey if i do this now and these are the triggers i gotta have to pull that and a lot of times influence yeah downstream care by how you respond to something or request something or how you treat something you know you may change a pathway and that may completely change their downstream that could be good or bad now caveat there but uh, from an ECMO standpoint it may be something that that we help influence that process and I I think that's the big thing with 
any of this, the drowning from the pre-hospital or even the early hospital emergency department setting, you know, given the, the basic life support, the good rescue breaths, making sure that we, we keep good oxygenation. And then for us in the emergency department, just set this patient up for success once they're admitted. Because a lot of this, a lot of this does come downstream, like mm-hmm. we've talked about. And then there's a decision tree. Are they going to talk about the patients that aren't as bad as the ones, you know, we're, we're always thinking worst case scenario, but mm-hmm. those ones that are on the edge, yeah, they got, they may have a little bit of pneumonia. They may have a little bit of cough post to this incident, especially kids. Most of the time you have a kid that has a submersion injury period. They're getting 23 hour ops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I have never seen a kid right. that get here that has that diagnosis that right. is not getting 23 hour ops, but do what's the release standard? I mean, there's a whole process to that here, but how do I know? I, I probably need to keep this patient. If there's any kind of symptoms that go in your head, go, hey, something ain't right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, think about, hey, where do I need to take this patient? What definitive center needs to have them? Those kinds of questions. So real quick, let's do a little down and dirty case to just talk about it. Uh, talk about a case we might have. Uh, uh, how would you guys management? Let's just go through it. So you had an eight-year-old um, found in a pool. Last time I was seen about four minutes ago. Uh, pulled out by family. You roll up five minutes later. We're in a halfway. It's a rural EMS. It's a rural Mississippi. You're about 45 minutes away from a level two and about an hour away from a level one. And, and I'm talking flying. I'm not talking, I'm talking ground EMS. And you're, you get there, you manage this kid. So you're there six minutes after mom's doing hands-only CPR. What do you, what do you guys prioritize? What do you want to do? rescue breathing again yeah. that's that's that first thing give those two two rescue breaths and see if that kid's going to start breathing on their own if they don't continue if they do we got a little bit of time to kind of watch and and talk and get some of that history uh but if you gotta if you gotta keep somebody breathing for this kid then you can have your partner at that point get some of the information from mom what happened what was witnessed if nothing was witnessed what are the the surrounding circumstances and you know, the kid, the kid scares me on your layperson doing chest compressions. Oh, was chest compressions ever really needed? Or were we focusing more on the chest compressions versus that? I mean, did the kid actually lose a pulse? And as a concern, yes, but you take that, you know, water temperature, was it a hypothermic patient? What's AHA tell you at this point? No more than checking a pulse, no more than five to 10 seconds if you look at your literature on it. Well, actually, if you take it and flip one more page over, and a hypothermic patient, mm-hmm. you're going to check a pulse no more than one minute. So, I mean, that, and you got to get out of that line that mindset. So, did the patient actually was in true cardiac arrest, or was it a respiratory arrest situation? Mm-hmm. Low pulse. And I, I did absolutely gloss over that. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of what I've seen is that the hands-only CPR. I've I've seen people coming in that it was you know they stopped breathing for a couple of minutes and all of a sudden we're cranking on the chest right. and <clears throat> that may just be a, a layperson education gap um, but absolutely if if there is a true cardiac arrest that takes precedence and even when they're breathing if they are breathing on their own that's great do you need to assist them breathing are they getting true chest rising fall are they getting really good breathing with someone that's that spontaneous breathing is an art it's truly an art um and so realizing hey let's get the bvm out you get some urgent injuries first thing i make sure i have that airway bag have a bvm I may not need it, but make sure you have the right size mask or mask you can have. 
Don, your credit, talking about peat valves earlier. If you've got one, put it on there. Go ahead and get them. Right. They need to start breathing. Get them some O2 right off the bat. Um, great. They're in arrest. Okay. But if they're not, let's see where we're at. So we're going to say this patient wasn't in arrest. They're breathing about four times a minute. Pretty shallow. This is eight-year-old is. Um, start assisting them a little bit with their ventilations. Hmm. Um, as soon as I realize that, they got a GCS of about six or seven. Where do you all want to go? I mean, if they're not responding very well with, with me assisting them, even, you know, their GCS is staying about the same, they're not showing any resistance to my assistance and all that, uh, I'm probably not going to stray far from getting ready to intubate this kid just because of, of what's taking place, the events. Um, going back, I noticed uh, in the case scenario, it said it fell off a rope swing. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to consider the spinal issues into this kid. depends on how high that rope swing was and all that. Um, yeah, I would respiratory rate of four and eight year old GCS seven. I'm, I'm like you, I'm, I'm going to have my stuff ready. If he don't respond pretty in a timely manner to that rescue breathing, I'm probably going to get ready to intubate the kid. And I think that's, that's what it boils down to is time. How long have we been, yeah. you know, did we give him three or four breaths of EVM and now all of a sudden he's breathing? Yeah. Well, we may give him a little while. I say a little while. That's, that's a, that's a, 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 a skewed statement but um, that, that's probably an experience thing with kids in, in general uh, and these type of injuries but where where do you have the threshold where's your trigger point to okay we've given them a chance yeah and, and we're not getting any better so now we we need to pull that 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 trigger of, of RSI and intubating them and getting true positive pressure the biggest thing to me was you start talking about these cases with kids just like AHA is pushing out, don't necessarily rush into a hospital. That's right. Yeah. Um, it, it takes a lot of takes a lot of persistence, and everybody's like, "Oh, you go to the hospital." If you can, if stay the environment if the environment allows it, yeah. stay where you are and let them give a chance with it with that oxygen. You want to give them as much oxygen. You don't want to decrease the oxygen. They've had a submerged injury, so make sure they're getting bagged appropriately, or they're getting that cannula or whatever it may be. Um, I don't. To your point, Don, I'd let them try to do it right there. Yeah. If I have to move an ambulance Absolutely. for a safety reason or whatever yeah. it may be, right? But try to before you start going down the road. Well, you got as many hands as you can. You Absolutely. and your partner, or first responders, everybody out there. By all means, use use your resources best you can before you go down that road. Absolutely. Um, intubating this kid. Uh, real quick. Everybody okay with what, what, what drugs do you want to use? So just if you got access to the. The whole pharmacy box, not just the limited one. Is there anything you think you definitely want to stay away from? Is there anything you want to definitely use? Uh, just with the kid, I would, you know, well, I don't know. You walk a line there when you start talking about, like, your paralytics, which is, you know, depolarizing, non-depolarizing paralytics. Um, I think that's also going to be a preference thing on that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rock person. I like rock. Um, but... Again, how, how far are we transporting this kid? Uh, is that going to affect my assessments once we get to the hospital? Because, I mean, on, on their standpoint, when we roll into ED, one of their first things is all right, airway, breathing, circulation's intact, we're good. Now we're dead to D and E aspect mm -hmm. of that. You know? What's my neurological yeah, exam? What's my neurological If I, I had gonna, somebody rocked. Yeah. yeah. Try to get that neuro exam before you do it. Yes. I, I think the biggest thing we need to push here is try to get right. whatever you can. If you can get that. Yeah. You ain't going to get a full cranial nerve exam. But oh. if you can figure out, hey, they were <clears throat> pain, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, 
how do y'all feel about ketamine in these kids I love or these it. patients? I think it's beneficial because you're yeah. going. We talked about the the beta two stuff earlier from the bronchoconstriction yeah. standpoint. So you're going you're going to help that aspect. You're going to give them a little bit of sedation, but not in case they did reach that 11 cc per key and have that volume shift. You're not worried about you know your your benzo type stuff where you're going to have that potentiation of that cardiovascular collapse they already got and you're making it worse. Ketamine's not really going to give you that, but it is going to give you some sedation, some um, uh, bronchoconstriction. Bronchodil- yeah, yeah. yeah, a little bit of bronchodilation. Bron- right. I think it's all about timing. If, you, yeah. if you're if you dealing yes. with somebody that's Absolutely. 30 minutes in, I don't think ketamine may be your option, but we're talking about this acute thing we're 15, 20 minutes yeah. in. All right, cool. Maybe that, we can, that's, mm-hmm. that's my deciding factor when I pull ketamine out of an art box is what is my time frame on this? And even with the trauma, when I teach, you know, my paramedic students, you know, obviously trauma is an acute issue, but if you look at it on a medical side, is this an acute issue? Because you start messing with ketamine on a chronic problem, yeah, you're gonna walk, you're, you're gonna walk into a headache if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. So we, we intubate them, everything goes okay. The spinal, we're talking about the scenario, they fell off a rope swing in the pool is what you end up finding out. C-spine, uh, Remember, if you got somebody there, again, using all your resources, get manual C-spine while you got the yeah. collar while you're intubating. That way they maintain C-spine, but you're not having that collar making your day a whole lot harder to bleed. Right. Yeah. Um, and then put the collar back on. Make sure swapping between BVMs or vents or whatever. We clamp the tube. Make sure it's all mm-hmm. good to go. Um, presser support if they need it. You know, if they've... And if they're hypotensive before you do it, make sure they get a little bit of a fluid bowl. So we don't want to overload them on fluid. Right. Just yeah. 10 cc's per kilo and then start working the pressors kind of is what pretty much think everybody in the industry standard is now. Work on Levo, Vaso, like Chris, you brought up earlier. Um, and for the most part, kids, we're talking about this specific, this particular case, eight years old. I mean, there are obviously, you know, being associated with the Children's Hospital, we know there are a lot of kids that have comorbidities. But for the most part, the pediatric population doesn't have the comorbidities yeah. so the likelihood of pressors and all that stuff kind of kind of goes down a lot when mm-hmm. you're when you're considering pediatric versions of these submergents it's, it's mostly a hypoxic thing yep i think the only time you might use it if if you're having to do weird vent stuff yeah that you got, oh yeah you're augmenting pressure. that right. anthracic pressure right. you're augmenting it with a vasopressor that's right and i you know now we touched that just a second ago a little bit when we talked about that knowing that when you go to ventilate this patient so uh, Portum fluid's not going to prevent that. I mean, you're still going to have that endothoracic pressure, still going to smash that stuff down a little bit. So you're going to have to augment it with some form of chemical. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing with this kid is, you know, once you do airway management or figure out you need that, get to a center, figure out a center that can manage this kid. Right. Um, If you've got to go somewhere else, do airway management first. But try to think downstream care. Hey, where is this kid? This kid's breathing four times a minute. It's got a ding GCS. They need to be somewhere it has got to pick you. That's right. Um, they can long-term manage this kid. So try to figure out where they can go from here. If that's air asset, if it's raining, because that's a thing when bad things happen, it tends to be raining. Right. Aircraft. Can you get somebody to rendezvous with you or help you manage this kid? Again, bagging them for an hour, two hours is not a fun day. So if you can try to get somebody with a vent to help you out, make sure we keep recruitment best we can. So uh, try to keep that 48 cc's per kilo, follow ours net, keep the peep going. Don't lose what you've gained. Don't don't stop. Mm-hmm. So, all right, guys. Well, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming today, being part Absolutely. of this episode. Absolutely. And I uh, hope to have you back soon. Yep, sounds good. I like it.